Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's read this together. And uh, if you have your Bible, pay close attention. I'm, uh, let me say this. You're going to need your Bible for this series. You're going to need to follow along with us in, in, this, in the text. We'll have some scriptures up on the screen, but you want to make sure you have it in your hand as well. But let's read this together. Mark chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem, notice this, went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is a massive amount of people, kind of a revival happening through John the Baptist's ministry, coming to be baptized and confess their sins. Now it tells us John's vibe. It says, he was clothed with, in the Greek it's the word vibe, in case you're wondering. Verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Some of you guys are like hipsters, you're like, I like this guy. I kind of, I'm digging his vibe. The camel, I like that, very vogue. Wild honey, is that organic? I like it. Verse 7, that's his diet and his vibe. Verse 7, and he preached, here's his message, his sermon. There comes one after me who is mightier than I. The masses of people coming to follow him. He tells them, don't look at me. There's one coming after me that I need to point you to whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says, it came to pass in those days that Jesus, here's Jesus coming on the scene, Jesus came from his hometown of Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words used over 40 times in this gospel, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit, the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. Just imagine that moment gets better. Then a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It says again immediately. Notice what happens next. The spirit, maybe we didn't expect this, drove him into the wilderness. What an interesting turn of events. And he, Jesus, was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful this morning, not just for your word in general, which we certainly are, but we're thankful for this passage you have for us this morning, for us to put our mind's eye on this moment in history, Jesus, when you 
stepped onto the scene, stepped onto the stage of your public ministry. Um, We've entered this place this morning, Jesus, because you have entered history. And we ask that you would teach us this morning in light of all these truths. What does this mean for us? What are you saying to us? Father, I have taken time to prepare some thoughts, a teaching, some exposition of this passage. But we desire the same thing Jesus experienced here. We just invite your Holy Spirit to descend upon us, to come in this place, to soften our hearts, to convict us in the way that only you do with tenderness and kindness. And Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and would you give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and take your seat. Well, as we break into our series, The Way, in the Gospel of Mark, each week we're going to look at a different aspect of the way of Jesus. As I said, Mark lays out for us the way in which Jesus lived his life. And here, in the passage we just read, if you're taking notes, I should say since you're taking notes, I'm just assuming you are, uh, we, we get this big idea today as we unpack this passage. We're going to look this morning at the way Jesus entered. The way Jesus entered. This is what Mark is leading our eyes to focus on in this passage this morning. Uh, particularly the events surrounding, almost the backdrop of Jesus' entrance onto the stage of his public ministry. Let me say that again. Mark details here in this passage, Jesus' entrance upon the stage of his public ministry. That, that's what Mark is doing here. He's showing us the entrance that Jesus has made, which is interesting for Mark. If you notice here, as we get into chapter 1, there's no genealogy. And there's no, probably more noticeably, there's no birth account, right? Matthew and Luke take extensive time to talk about Jesus' entrance in the manger. We know the story. There's no room in the end. You know the whole deal. Mark, or Mark specifically, he emphasizes not Jesus' birth, but Jesus' baptism. He emphasizes Jesus' entrance through his sort of arrival on the scene in his, again, his public ministry. And remember, as Mark is doing this here, he is describing Jesus' entrance. He is proclaiming the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus here, that Jesus has arrived, that the king has arrived. This is good news to suffering Christians in that day and age who were subject to an authority in their own way. They were subject to the authority of Nero, that own royal figure. But the gospel was coming to them. Hey, good news for you. A greater king has come. Jesus is here, and he's establishing and inaugurating his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. His is an authority that one day even uh, Nero himself will bow down to. So, so Mark is announcing the entrance, the arrival of the king. And, you know, looking on, it's, it's interesting as they're reading this. They're probably thinking to themselves, huh, it's not the most grand entrance that you would expect of the king of the universe. I mean, the king of the universe is here. You know, I've got three children, and each of them, each morning, make a different entrance to the breakfast table, for example. 
Um, Judah and Evie are up first most of the time because they got to get to school and they are just zombieing their way. It's, and it happens like in, in moments. Like, you know, um, you know those things, escape rooms? You ever see, you know those things that you go to with friends? Does anybody know what those are? Okay, good. You guys with me? Good. Escape rooms, right? Um, escape rooms. That, uh, kind of what it feels like getting my kids out into the dining room every morning, like from their, their bedroom to get some breakfast, it's like leading my kids out of a, a puzzle. How do we get you from here to there? And it happens sequentially. Sometimes they stop halfway and they lay down in the hallway and you're like, let's go, we're almost there. Penny is our youngest and she's usually the last one to the breakfast table. We try to let her sleep. She's not up and going to school yet, but you usually know she's coming. She, of all the kids, usually makes the most grand entrance. Um, well, my kids show up for the, to the breakfast table, even this morning, this happened, Brittany can attest to this, Judah and Evie show up, just a mess, just like PJ is barely hanging on, just it, the whole situation going on with the face, all sorts of fluids, all sorts of hairdos, and they're there, I want waffles, for their waffles, okay? Penny, on the other hand, has a whole morning routine, and you know she's going to make her entrance. It's so grand because you start to hear a hustle and bustle going on in the bedroom. You hear the light switch kick on. You hear furniture moving around. I don't know what she's doing in there. She's got a whole, like, base in there. She's got, like, employees working for her in there. It's amazing. She's running a whole operation in her bedroom. And she comes, this morning she comes, and we have this uh, in our hallway to their hall, like, our living room to the hall. We have this door that, like, rolls open and closes. And we keep it closed as often as we can when the kids are in there. And she'll come, and he'll, she'll just kind of and she'll open it. And she stands there waiting for you to acknowledge that she's there, alive and awake. So like, she's not going to enter the room until she gets this like coronation, you know, like, Penny is here, hear ye, hear ye, you know. And she comes to the breakfast table fully ready for her day. Like she's dressed to the nines, she is ready to go. My youngest one, she's such a fun one to watch. Different entrances, grand entrances. What, what you would, the kind of entrance you'd expect from a maybe three-year-old is similar to what you would expect of a king, something extravagant, something public, something, well, cultural, with a tension around it, with a, with a marching band around it, with a whole show around it. But what an unexpected entrance, listen, that the king of the universe makes onto the scene here. It's not extravagant by any stretch of our cultural standard, but let me say this, it is significant. What it may lack in our cultural extravagance, it certainly makes up in significance. I mean, we're talking about here the most significant entrance in human history. The entrance of Jesus Christ upon the scene of his public ministry. Now, John is going to give us the way through which Jesus enters. How is it that the king of the universe enters the scene to begin his ministry of reaching and saving and seeking that which is lost? Well, you, you could write these down. We're going to go through each of them, but uh, kind of, you know, um, a big part of, of preaching I'm learning is not just learning what the Bible says, but also learning yourself a little bit. As I'm learning myself, I notice that I tend to... 
I tend to kind of ease my way into some of my sermon points. Have you noticed this? Like I'll do like 40 minutes on the first one and then like five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. It's like, are we ever going to leave? You know, five minutes. Um, So I want to give you them all at once, okay? So at least we could say I finished my points. Here they are. We did it. Okay, Russ. Russ is giving me, always gives me good feedback. All right, here is, here, here are, here are what, here's what we're looking at. All right, these are the, almost the five events through which Jesus enters the scene. He enters through what we'll say is the messenger, it's John the Baptist. He enters through the water of baptism. He enters through the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be significant. And then Jesus enters the scene through the affirmation of his father. And lastly, kind of an unexpected last part of this entrance is he enters through the wilderness in a time of temptation. All right, let's look at these. How is it, what is the way in which Jesus enters the scene? Have your Bibles open there to Mark 1 again. We see the first thing that Jesus enters through, the first place through which Jesus enters, and it's through what we'll call the messenger. Firstly, Jesus entered through, he enters the scene, his grand entrance, the significant entrance is through the messenger. Uh, it's almost like the first thing that Mark wants us to know about Jesus. This is really important. The first thing Mark wants us to know is that Jesus doesn't come on the scene out of thin air. The Christian faith is not just some like new thing out of nowhere. Jesus drops in out of, out of kind of thin air uh, onto the scene with, with no expectation or anticipation. What Mark wants us to know there in verse 1 is when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, notice where he begins. He says in verse 2, as it is, what? Written. Okay. Jesus' entrance is not something random out of thin air. It's, it's been expected and anticipated by God's people throughout the centuries. What has been written about the Messiah. Jesus is arriving as the fulfillment of promise. The fulfillment of prophecy that God would send his king. That God would send his suffering servant. As it is written in the prophets. What's been written about Jesus has come to pass. So this is the first thing Mark wants us to know. That Jesus is not making his entrance out of nowhere. There's historic context to this moment. Israel has been waiting for him to come. But more than that, Jesus has a forerunner is the term that we use to describe John the Baptist. He has someone who, as the scriptures declare, that goes before him, like any royal figure coming to any area, they would have a royal, uh, or they would have a, a team of subjects that would go ahead to prepare the way, to pave the roads, to get the way ready for the Messiah to come. And that's what the scriptures say in Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger, my messenger, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Jesus doesn't drop out of thin air. He has a forerunner who comes before him to prepare the way just as scripture promised. And we know that this is none other there in verse 4 than John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John's making a funny face at me right now, and I just have to say, John is a barber, and he likes to go by John the Baptist. I just have to say that, okay? I just, you couldn't smile at me like that and me not say that, all right? Um, John the Baptist. Now, interesting, some interesting facts about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus, 
And just as Jesus is, is anointed for a purpose, John the Baptist, also from Scripture, is anointed for a unique purpose that exists to serve the purpose of his cousin, who is the Messiah. And that purpose is to prepare the way of the Lord. This is really interesting stuff. I mean, all, all of the Gospels say something about John the Baptist. The most important thing that the Scriptures give us about Jesus' entrance through this messenger is that John had a unique ministry of preparation for the, way, for the coming of Jesus. The ministry of preparation. Think of your home and, and the state that it can often be in after it gets used. Right, A home is for living in, right? And, and when you live in your home and it gets into the state of shambles that it, it, it has the potential to do, you know, um, we know things that, that they don't go from disorder to order. That law of that smart scientist has said well. It goes from order to disorder, and so it, you see that tested every day in, in our home, at least. We see how the, the mess um, comes naturally. <laughs> the order doesn't. Now, if, if your house is in the state that, uh, a state of that mess and someone's coming over your house, what you do is you prepare the way. You, you do some busy work to get that thing cleaned. And we always say, like, that's, that's the best tool for getting our house clean is having guests over. It's like when we have people coming over, our, my house is always in the best shape when people are coming over. Uh, we start doing landscaping work. Like we go crazy. Like I had a, a buddy of mine that I haven't seen for, I think it was close to four years, Brittany close to 10 years, a, an old friend of mine who's coming to town with his wife. And we literally were landscaping the front yard. Now we had already been doing it, but it was like, let's complete it before they get here. You know, um, we're weird, I guess. But um, we're preparing the way for the arrival of our guests. Well, John the Baptist has a ministry of preparation. He's preparing the way. He's smoothing things out. Here's specifically what he's doing. He's preparing hearts for the arrival of Jesus. He's preparing hearts. See, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to call mankind to repent, to believe the gospel, to trust in the salvation of the cross. But before Jesus comes to provide that salvation, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he provides the preparation. Get your hearts ready. It tells us that he comes baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is John's ministry. Calling people, listen, to be honest with God and themselves about the nature of their lives. The only thing they're going to need, as John Edwards says, the only thing that they're going to need to be saved is their own need. That's all they're going to need. The only thing they're going to need to be saved by God, to be restored by God, is their own need. But they've got to be honest about the nature of their need. They've got to be honest about the course of their life. And they've got to make an adjustment. They've got to turn. You see, it's faith, but it's faith that follows repentance and turning away from my sin. The very thing that, that's going to put the Savior upon the cross. The very thing that Jesus is coming to die for. So John the Baptist, he comes to prepare the way to get hearts ready for the Messiah. He comes preaching a baptism of repentance. It's the state of, a, of the heart that says, God, I haven't been walking with you. I haven't been honoring you. And I see that, and I know you see that, and I, and I want to turn from that. I want to change my mind. I want to go in the other direction. I see this way that may seem right to me, and I see how it ends in destruction. I don't want to move towards destruction. God, I want to move toward you, the source of life. So, so it's a turning away from sin. This is what John is, is seeking to produce in the hearts of God's people as they're ready for the Messiah. He's, 
He's preparing the heart. He's doing it through preaching and also through baptizing. Isn't that interesting? Baptizing, like full-on, you know, submerged, underwater baptism. Uh, it tells us in this, in this scripture that all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem, this is, by the way, thousands and thousands of people. They come to John and they're all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is called a revival, by the way. A mass revival. The Spirit of God is stirring the hearts of the people to confess their sin. This is one of the great marks of revival throughout history, by the way. We tend to think of revival in terms of passion and hunger, and that is a huge component of that. We talk about that a lot, like God comes where he's wanted, and that's one of the marks of revival in history is a hunger for God. He shows up where he's wanted. But one of the fruits of revival in history is a return to holiness, not because for God to accept us, but because we understand the nature and the love of God that he already has accepted us, and we understand the nature of sin, that it's destructive, and it's broken the order of the world. And so there's a confession of repentance that comes back to Jesus and says, I want what you have, um, a change of course. And so that's what these people are coming to John to do, and they're being baptized, which is really interesting because in that culture, um, baptism was limited towards Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. Like, I'm a Gentile. Any other? I'm a Gentile. Say, hey. All right. A lot of us are. Not all of us, but a lot of us in our context. Sorry about that last thing I just did. Um, <laughs> if I want to become a Jew, I want to become a God-fearing Jew, I must be baptized. I must, I must come, and I must be officially kind of um, oriented or, or um, initiated into the, the family of God's people. But here's John calling Jews to repent. Here's John calling the people that say, I'm right with God. Why? Because look at my upbringing and look at this and look at that and look at my external this. And, and John's like, no, 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 you're getting it wrong. The problem of humanity isn't behavior, it's the heart. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, or religious or irreligious, the issue is the heart. And God is looking to change hearts and reach hearts and change lives that way. So you've got to repent. You've got to turn. You've got to come. And, and even as an act of humility, say, God, I'm, I'm starting afresh through baptism. So, so John the Baptist, he has this ministry. And I want to say this. This is our ministry as well. You know, our job is to prepare hearts. Jesus is coming again. <laughs> and our mission in this world is, is to prepare hearts for his arrival, for his return. We have more than just his ministry. We also have his manner of life, which is just a fun detail. I talked about kind of the, the draw. to If you're like Pacific Northwesterner, you'll, you'll love his vibe here. Clothed with camel's hair woven together and a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. I, I mean, most of us have had wild honey before to some degree, even if it was, you know, packaged in some bottle on the side of the road of the Asheville Mountains. Um, but I've actually, I've also eaten locusts before. Have you ever done that? That's fun. They're, they're, they're crunchier than you might think. They're as disgusting as you might think as well. They're best served caramelized with a lot of seasoning. So, some of you guys are like, cool, I'm going to get that on my avocado toast this week. Can I get, do, you, do you guys have locusts and wild honey that you can put on top of that? All right. This is John's vibe. Here's the point about John. He doesn't fit the mold for a spiritual leader in his culture. He doesn't fit the mold. You know, every culture has their mold. Every church and ministry world has their mold of a spiritual leader. Here's what they look like. Here's what they dress like. Here's what they eat like. Here's what they sound like. 
And, and there's such a tendency in our world to conform to the patterns of the church's world, of these molds of, of what it means to be a spiritual leader. And what was so powerful about John is that he was authentically him. In all his camel's hair, in all his wacky organic vibe wilderness diet, he was himself. He was who God called and made him to be. John's a special character in scripture because he shows us both how to have humility and knowing who we're not. He wasn't the Messiah. But John shows us how to have maturity, which is knowing who we are in God. And there's something influential about that, knowing who God has made you to be and running in that. It's amazing what God will do. God won't bless you trying to be someone else. Trying to have their vibe, their, you know, just be who God made you to be. Fulfill the ministry God has given you with the gifts that he's given you. So John has this real authentic thing. That's, that's where God blesses, when you're you, who God made you to be in him. And so we have this real unique and, and natural manner of life. And then we need to see his message. He preached, this is his sermon. There's one coming after me who's mightier than me. I baptize, I baptize you with water. He says in the next verse, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here was John's message. Jesus. Jesus. That's his message. Paul says we preach Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus and him crucified. Like if today you're here and, and you're, you're, you're hungry to serve the Lord, you, you want to have an influence and an impact like John did. Where you go, man, I want to be someone that God uses uniquely to be me, to reach people, to lead them to him. But maybe you're like, I'm just, I'm too new. Or I'm too intimidated. The Bible, I mean, it's just, it's such a big book. And it's wrapped in leather. Like, who does that anymore? It's a leather-bound giant book. It's intimidating. And maybe you feel like you go to the small group and you're just like, I'm really happy to be here, but... There's these thoughts of like inferiority. I can't contribute to this enough because I don't know enough. Ministry is not about you showing off all that you know. And if someone's stuck in that, that's, a, that's their own kind of journey. Here's how you can be a, here's how you can serve God. Preach Jesus. Just preach him. Who's Jesus? Who has he been to you? What has he done for you? What is he able to do? Study the word. Know who Jesus is and what he's able to do. But let that be your message. See, John was, was preaching everywhere going, Jesus, he's just pointing to Jesus. And there's a humility in this, right? Like the Christian faith, what a great model. John's like, I, I'm not even worthy to preach for him, like to, to, to stoop down and, and unloose his sandal, let alone preach for him. I'm not, there's this humility there. John's whole life was about getting the attention away from himself onto Jesus. And that's ministry. Going into your workplace and people are like, well, I thought you were a perfect Christian. You just go, oh, that's a great setup, by the way. Like, oh, let's talk about that phrase, perfect Christian, for a second. And just deter the attention onto Jesus. We exist to be these channels through which people can see Jesus. We preach him, we proclaim him, we serve him, we point to him. John says about Jesus, and I love that this ministry, it's birthed out of a theological understanding of something. The reason why John preached Jesus and it was all about him is John knew that he only had so much capacity to change people and help people. He goes, I'm here to baptize you with, with water, but I can't give you what you really need, which only Jesus can give you, which is the Holy Spirit, which is salvation, which is a new life. And there's something also like liberating in that with ministry. 
You preach Jesus going, I, you know, I can preach him to you, but I can't change your heart. We're not in the business of saving souls. We can't do that. We can't save our own soul. How can we save someone else's? But we're in the business of preaching Jesus, trusting that he's the one that saves by the Spirit. He's the one that changes by the Spirit. He's the one that does the work. The sower just goes out to sow. Jesus is going to talk about that in Mark 4. So Jesus enters through the messenger. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's preparing the way. He's dressed like a Portland hipster. He's eating wild honey and locusts. And he's preaching the message of Jesus, that Jesus is coming and he's going to pour out his spirit. And you need him. In John 3.30, John says this. He says, I must decrease. He must increase. That was his whole life. Let me get out of the way so that you can see Jesus. Let me get out of the way so that you can see and know Jesus. Such an incredible thing, especially because, let me say this, John had every opportunity to leverage his influence for his own selfish gain. I mean, thousands of people following him, you know? He's, he's blue checkmarked in Israel. He's trending. He's on the scene but what a great test of a life. You know, there's really two kinds of people in this world. People who exist to make much of themselves or people who exist to make much of Jesus. Do you exist to make much of yourself? Or do you exist, man, let's be like John. His whole purpose was about getting out of the way for people to see Jesus. Amen? Kind of amen? A little bit amen? Amen? All right, good. It's all right. You're allowed to talk. All right. Jesus also enters through the water. He enters through the water. So he enters through the messenger, John the Baptist, who goes to prepare the way, to prepare hearts for his coming, has this unique God-given, authentic ministry, being who God created him to be, and that's where the power is, that's where the blessing is. His message was simple, it was Jesus, knowing that only Jesus can do what only Jesus could do. I exist to point hearts to him. My whole life is not about making much of me, but it's using my life to make much of Jesus. And then we see Jesus arrive on the scene in verse 9 as Jesus enters, not just through this messenger, but now Jesus enters through, notice this, through the water. It came to pass in those days, we read this, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Pretty interesting moment here. This is where Mark begins with the story of the person of Jesus, not with his birth, but with his baptism. Jesus, somewhere around 30 years old, He's retiring from his, his vocation as a carpenter's son. And he's now coming to inaugurate his ministry in the waters of baptism. Now, this, this could be a little confusing. Like, let's ask this question. Why did Jesus get baptized? Especially when John's baptism, do you remember reading it? It was a baptism of what? Confession of sin and repentance, right? So, like, why would Jesus, who's the sinless Savior show up to a baptism that appears to be about sinfulness and confession of sin. Well, a few, a few notes about this. Number one, John had issue with Jesus coming to him. John 1 tells us, and Matthew as well, that when Jesus comes to be baptized, Matthew's gospel says that John goes, Jesus, you should be baptizing me. Like, what are you doing here, right? And, and Jesus tells John, you, you might not understand, but there is a purpose for me being here. Certainly, you're right. Jesus is not 
in need of the cleansing of, of repentance. He, he's not a sinner. But Jesus, he's baptized, Jesus says this, to fulfill all righteousness. There's a purpose that God has for Jesus in this baptism. Let me give you a few reasons why Jesus was baptized. And they just so happen to all end in ify, all right? Um, sorry, all right? First is identify. Identify. The first reason why Jesus comes to the water's edge to be baptized is because this is what his ministry is going to be all about. Identifying himself as God with man. Identifying with the fallen nature of man, the fallen life of man. Not in the sense that he is sin. He becomes sin on the cross as he is treated as though he is us, but he is righteous. But he's come to identify in his humanity with humanity. So there's a purpose of his baptism to identify with humanity in his baptism. There's also a purpose to exemplify. He's going to call his disciples to be baptized, and he's going to call them to go into all the worlds and baptize. So baptism is, is one of the, the two um, ordinances, or depending on your background, sacraments that Jesus has given to the church. We are to be about two practices, two key practices as a people. We're to be about the Lord's Supper, coming to the table of communion, in a sincere, reverent manner to remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled for our sin, to remember the body of Jesus that was crucified as well. And then we're also given the sacrament or ordinance of baptism. It's a funny thing. Like, we're called to go into all the world and do this symbol thing where people trust in Jesus, and as an expression and a display of their salvation, they submerge underwater, and then they come back up. They're baptized. We've had the joy as a community of seeing the transformation of lives by the gospel and the display of that through baptism. It's a really sweet thing to be a part of. If you haven't yet been baptized, scripture calls you, Jesus calls you to be baptized. And what it is, is it's not a official, like, I'm saved now event. I prayed the prayer, I went forward, I did, you know, 10 jumping jacks, am I in, you know? No, you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone. That's why Jesus was able to turn to the man next to him on the cross and say, today you will be with me in paradise if you manage to get baptized before you get there. He didn't say that. We're saved by grace through faith. But baptism is an external sign, an external display of an inward reality, of an inward transformation. I'm baptized to associate myself with the death and resurrection of Jesus that saved me. I'm baptized also to associate myself with his church and all her messiness. We can make baptism such an individual thing, but in Acts 2, it was a very public thing, like, hey, we're all a bunch of messes saved by Jesus. And when you get baptized, you go, me too! I'm being baptized into Jesus, associating with his church and all her messiness through the saving work of the gospel. So Jesus is baptized to exemplify what he's going to call his disciples to do, because we know any good leader leads by example. He also is baptized, this is huge, to clarify. To clarify um, what he's on earth to do. This is a, you could say, an inaugural moment in the life of Jesus with his ministry. We're going to see in a minute what happens with the Spirit and the Father. But this is an inaugural moment. Jesus is not just this carpenter, son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. We're going to clarify here, Jesus is on earth for something bigger than anyone could imagine. And in his baptism, he is, in a sense, he's being baptized into his ministry. He's inaugurating his ministry. He's clarifying what he was on earth to do. 
his, his, his mission that God has sent him to do. And lastly, he, he's being baptized here to glorify. So he enters the scene through the waters of baptism where he identifies, exemplifies, clarifies, and he glorifies God. That's what he's doing here. He's glorifying God. He's being obedient and submitted to the Father. He tells John, remember in Matthew, I need to be baptized to glorify the Father, to fulfill all righteousness under the Father. Okay, this is something that I think we can forget about our, this is some theology for you, okay? Something that we can forget about our salvation as Christians. The gospel isn't just that you're saved from your sin, that Jesus takes your sin on the cross. That is the gospel, thank God. Praise be to God that my sin was put on Jesus on the cross. All of it, every part of it, every ounce of it, the past, present, future sins. For those who are in Christ, you're a new creation. You're no longer defined by what you've done or will do. Because your sins are put on Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The gospel isn't just that God removes your sin. The gospel is also that God gives you, gives, gifts you his righteousness. Did you hear that? Like, are you thinking about that for a second? I mean, taking my sin away in and of itself, that's a messy, messy business right there. That's a big job. That, that seems like enough. But imagine this. Jesus on the cross, he takes upon himself what our record deserves. And through our faith in him, the Bible says that he credits or imputes is the word. His, all that Jesus did is gifted to us. So God treated Jesus as though he lived your life. So that, so that listen, he could treat you and see you as though you lived Jesus' life. It's the gospel. It's a trade. It's an exchange of grace. And so we, we can forget this sometimes. Like Sometimes it's like, well, why didn't Jesus, like if he, if he just came to die on the cross, why didn't he just like enter the scene, like beam down? Why do you have to do the whole birth thing? That whole, like, I love Christmas, but like, was it necessary? Like why didn't he just beam down and then just go to the cross and die for sin? Well, listen, because you're not, you and I aren't just saved by his death. We're also saved by his life, Paul says. So he lives a righteous life. We get that. We get that righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized to glorify the Father, to fulfill all righteousness. And the good news for those of us who are in Christ is we have our sin removed and the righteous things that Jesus does, they're put upon us. It's one thing to know that. It's a whole other thing to approach God with that reality and say, God, this is who I am in you. I'm not what I've done, whether good or bad. Whether Because you have two opportunities there. You could either be defined by your unrighteousness or you can be defined, here's the other option, by your self-righteousness. You're defined by your good. But a Christian says, I'm not defined by either my good or my bad. I'm defined by the righteousness of Jesus that has been clothed upon me, that has been given to me. So Jesus enters through the water, but then we see this next moment in his baptism. As he comes up, we see this. Write this down. He enters through the Spirit. This is so significant here. Jesus enters through the waters of baptism, And as he comes up out of the water, Mark's favorite word, and immediately, immediately, coming up from the water, John, John himself bears witness to this event happening in the Gospel of John. He, Jesus, saw, the, imagine seeing this, the heavens are parting now. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are parting, and the Spirit of God is descending upon him like a dove. This is an incredible inaugural moment. Jesus is stepping into his ministry. Listen closely. 
and he doesn't enter onto the scene of his ministry without the Holy Spirit. He must enter through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Let's remember this. Jesus is God. Jesus, the Bible says, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. He is the word made flesh. Jesus is God with skin on. He's humanity, covered over God. But Jesus, listen, lives from his humanity by the power of the Spirit. It's important to remember this. Like All that Jesus does, he does by the power of the Holy Spirit. He models the life that he's calling us to live. He, you know, and there's times where there's a lot of debate on this in theology too, and Christology with Jesus. Like, are there moments where Jesus is like, you know, at the transfiguration, he's peeling back the humanity and the, the, the divinity of Christ is shining forth, forth like a bright light. It's like, oh, he God, okay. But most of, most of the accounts of Jesus in the gospels describe this, the work of the Holy Spirit empowering him to live the purpose that God has given him. In his humanity, Jesus was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit is necessary. Jesus doesn't start his ministry without the Holy Spirit. Now, the point of this is obviously to, um, you and I are nothing without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, and sometimes in the church, we talk about the Holy Spirit as if he's like an additive and an enhancement to the Christian life. You know what I mean? Like, that was a great service, but if it just had a little Holy Spirit, it would be just better. We can think that way, or we can think of our Christian life. Like, I'm really following the Lord, but if the Holy Spirit, you know, if I could get his enhancement. Now, the language of Scripture would contradict that so strongly, that kind of thinking. To say that the Holy Spirit, as a Christian, it's, he's, not, he's not an enhancement to your Christian walk. He is the very substance of it. There is no Christian life without the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has his disciples in the same predicament where he's going to send them out for their public ministry. And he doesn't go, okay, boys, get to work. Try your hardest. Be your best. Don't mess up. <laughs> They're going to. He says, go and wait for my Holy Spirit. Personalize this. Jesus, you've called me to be a mom. Jesus, you've called me to follow you. You've called me to serve. You've called me to be a husband, a wife. You've called me to be a faithful student. You've called me to be a light for you in my workplace. You've called me to be a loving friend. And I cannot do that without your Holy Spirit. I need your Spirit, God. I need your Spirit to descend upon me just as you descended upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Such a significant moment. Man, I have so much stuff. I would love to get into with this, but it's uh, just uh, too much for this morning. So, um, you know, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is God. It's really important. It's really just write it down. Okay, next point. Jesus enters through the messenger. He enters through the waters of baptism. He enters through the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the empowerment for his ministry. And what a beautiful moment here. Jesus, and here's the, the foundation of Jesus' ministry is so beautiful, right? Other than John the Baptist, it's submission to God, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the Christian life. Submit to God, 
the power of the Holy Spirit to be who he's calling me to be. I've got to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit, who is God, and the Father. An intimate relationship with my heavenly Father. This is the foundation of Jesus' life and ministry. Without this, we're not, by the way, without this, we're not building on anything. We're just doing religion. But if we have submission to God, we have the power of his spirit. And listen to this, we have not just the idea of the Father, but hear this closely, the voice of the Father. The voice of the Father comes from heaven. This is such a significant moment and says, you are my beloved son in in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This declaration of the Father is the basis for everything that Jesus is going to do. And I want you to notice, it's before he does a single thing. The Father's declaration over the Son is before he earns it, before he achieves anything. He's just the Son of the Father. This is a beautiful declaration that the Father makes to the Son. This is the foundation for his life. You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In this verse, you have three things. You have a declaration of acknowledgement, a declaration of affection, and a declaration of approval. This is, by the way, for as many who have received Jesus, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. As a Christian, you're now defined by your heavenly father, your father's authority, your sonship, your adoption to him. What he says about you is what matters most. That's the loudest voice. And the father looks at the son and he gives this first a declaration of acknowledgement. This is so beautiful. He says, you are my son. That's, that's significant, especially for those of us in this room. Maybe you feel like, that's one thing in life that you've perpetually missed out on and it's translated into your relationship with God is you've never felt acknowledged. You've never felt acknowledged for the value of who you are in God. You've never felt acknowledged for your presence and your worth and your dignity. And you just need to hear the, fa- the most important acknowledgement comes to you through the, through the Father of lights, the Bible says, who acknowledges you as his child. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Father acknowledges his children. You're acknowledged by God. Listen, you don't have to live for the acknowledgement of men when you have the acknowledgement of the Father. When you know he sees you, when, he, when, when you know he sees you and said, that's my kid. So Jesus has the Father declare his acknowledgement. This is my son. I see you. And it's also a declaration of affection. I love that. You are my, what? Beloved son. The affection of the, he, doesn't, he could just say, you're my son. But he, you know what he says? You are my son who I love so, so much. I love you so, so much. Like maybe this is foreign for a lot of us who have this like earthly father idea of God who does loving things but doesn't feel loving things or at least doesn't know how to express loving things. So a lot of the times we can reduce God to these like theological formulas and he does things because he's God and it's within his nature and his character to save and to reach. And we, we kind of make God just subject to his own character in a way that's emotionless, in a way that has no affection or care. But you know, the Bible says this in Ephesians 2, that it was because of his great love for us, because of his love for you, He saved you. 
He told Israel this too. Like, I've chosen you out of all the nations of the world, not because you're awesome, not because you earned it, not because you're mighty, but because I love you. That's why. Well, why do you love us? Because I love you. Well, why? Because I love you. I mean, this is his explanation to his people all throughout the centuries. I love you because I love you, not because you're lovable, okay? I love you because I am love and you are my beloved child and I love my children. I love you. I've demonstrated my love for you. Even when you didn't love me, I loved you first. And I sent my son Jesus to die for you. So we see this acknowledgement even over the son from eternity past, the father acknowledging the son in relationship with the spirit, through the spirit of love, the affection given to the son. The Bible says that, that God wants to pour out his same love on our hearts by his spirit. And we see the approval of the father. The father's approval, what a declaration. Some of us, are living with the purpose of gaining an approval that we've already received. Gaining an approval that we've already received. Jesus hasn't done a single thing and he says, I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's like, a, it's like the voice, you know? Not the voice of the father, but the show with CeeLo Green. That voice? <laughs> Where if you're good enough, the chair will turn and you'll get the approval of one of these contestants. And some of us, we've, our lives have been that way. Like our father, our parent won't approve of us until we, or only if we. And, and it's like for some of us, we're living our Christianity trying to get God to turn his chair around. To say, okay, you've earned it, you deserve it. And Jesus models the heart of the Father that's reiterated all throughout the gospel. You have the Father's approval right where you are right now because you're his. He approves of you in Christ. Acknowledgement, affection, and approval that's given to the Son for, and for those who are in him. Lastly, we'll close with this last one. We see that Jesus enters through the wilderness. He enters through the wilderness. He enters through the messenger which then turns to the water where he's baptism. He enters through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes on the scene. His foundation is the relationship he has with his father who declares over him, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, acknowledgement, affection, and approval as a basis for his whole life, um, as well as ours. For those of us who are in Christ, that's what we seek to build our lives upon, not trying to gain the father's acknowledgement, affirmation, or approval, but living from it. It's already true. The Spirit comes upon Jesus. The Father affirms Jesus. And then the Bible says that immediately, so like right after that, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. What a series and sequence of events. You know, uh, this is probably why Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. You got to be careful when you pray, Holy Spirit, Spirit, lead me where my trust is with. He's like, okay, wilderness. <laughs> the 
The Spirit drove Jesus. The language there of drove is going to be the same word that's used when Jesus is casting out demons later. It speaks of forceful motion. The Father, the Spirit, affirms the Son and then drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted by the devil, to be tempted by Satan. Wow, there's a lot going on here in this section. The most significant first is that Jesus is being tested. Um, When Jesus is tempted by Lucifer, the first two temptations are made under the basis of this question. It's really important. If you are, what? The Son of God. Didn't God the Father just say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? So, so interesting now, there's a test to see, do we, does, is, is this true? Does, is Jesus going to live in this, in his humanity? Is he going to believe what the Father has spoken over him? So it's being tested. If you're really the Son of God, wait, I don't need to prove what God has said. That's the whole temptation to try to prove that, that I'm a child of God. I've got to prove it. Prove that you're a child of God. Go. It's like, no, I am a child of God. He said, I'm his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. That's, that's the first aspect of that temptation, which is, by the way, like where faith is really developed. Like, we know this. Um, true faith isn't built in the classroom or the middle school cafeteria. Like, it is. Like, seeds are planted. But faith is really fortified when it's tested, when it has to be trusted. It's one thing to say, I know this is true and I believe this is true about God. It's a whole other thing to go, my life depends on me believing this. Do you know what I'm saying? I have to hold on to this, otherwise I'm nothing. And that's, that's really the only kind of faith that you can trust in. Like, you can't really fu- trust a, a faith that hasn't been tested. You can't trust a, a faith that hasn't been tested. But if it's been tested, there's substantial truth to it. Um, but, but there's another thing going on here that's a part of the greater narrative of Jesus going to the cross. You have God the Word, you have God the Father, and you have God the Spirit in Jesus' baptism, much like creation, followed by temptation from the serpent. Sound familiar? Sound Genesis 1 to 3e-ish? That's what's going on here. See, the Bible says about Jesus, listen to this, that Jesus, Scripture says, he is the second Adam. Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden because they failed the test. But Jesus is driven into the wilderness and he is tempted by Satan. The test that we, that we all face each and every day. I love that the Bible, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, it, it details what Jesus is tempted with. And there's these three things, which are the three things that you'll, you and I will always be tempted with to some degree. Jesus is tempted with the lust of the flesh, Matthew tells us. To gratify your flesh, so this is pleasure, sinful pleasure. The lust of the eyes, it's, at that point it's, it's a possession. You could have this. And he's tempted with the pride of life. You can be this position, pleasure, passion, and position, being someone. Now, what's interesting, check us out. Look at Adam and Eve's temptation. When the woman, what? saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the eyes. It was pleasant to the, oh, dang it, I messed it up. It, she's, food, that's the point. Lust of flesh, 
that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, look at this, and a tree desirable to make one wise. You could be as God, the pride of life. Like, First like, John says it this way, for all, don't love the world and the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. From Adam and Eve's temptations to your and my temptations each and every day, what we're seeking to do is fight the battles of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But the truth is, humanity has failed in this fight. You and I, each and every day, fail in this fight. Do you know what I'm talking about? No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will always provide a way out that you may be able to bear it. And time and time again, as God provides that way of escape, what do we do? We run the other way. We fall. We falter. We fail, just like Adam and Eve. So, so what's the hope of our salvation? Well, it's going to be a Savior who wins for us. It's going to be a greater Adam who when tempted with these things, he overcomes the enemy. Here's what Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners and continue to sin, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. It's the first of many tests that Jesus will face, that he will overcome as our champion who goes to the cross declaring the victory. And here's what I want you to see, Christian, who's, who's in despair, despair because of your own failure. Jesus' victory is your victory. He wins for you. He wins for me. His obedience gifts me the righteousness of God. Hebrews also says this. I'll invite the band to come out as we close. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, I love this with Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but notice this, was in all points... All points is lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, notice this, yet without sin. So, so what does that mean for Jesus? That means that I can therefore come boldly to his throne of grace. You can come as you are because he knows what it's like to be human, but more so, he's overcome the sin for you. You can come to him. Come to his throne of grace that you might obtain mercy and find the grace to help in your time of need. And we're going to see all throughout the Gospel of Mark that this is who Jesus is. This is the way he lives his life. He lives as someone who can be touched by our infirmities, by our sinfulness. He goes up to the leper that no one is willing to talk to, and Jesus touches the leper. This is how Jesus entered the scene. He entered through the messenger of John the Baptist, he entered through the waters of baptism, he entered through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he entered through the declaration of the Father. And lastly, we see that he entered through the temptations in the wilderness. He did this all to establish a ministry that benefits us today. And so where on this spectrum do you need to personalize the ministry of Jesus today? Is it your calling to be a messenger for him? Is it your willingness to surrender to the Father as Jesus did in, in baptism? Is it, I, I need the Holy Spirit in my life and I'm asking God to pour out his spirit upon me. Is it, I need to start building my life not for God's approval, but from God's approval over me. Or maybe it's, I need to see Jesus as the victor over temptation and I'm no longer bound by the things that I'm facing, but through him, there's victory and there's power.
This is how Jesus enters the scene. Amen?